welcome to The Legal Lowdown by Barton Gilman, providing clear, accurate, and straightforward analysis of today's key legal issues. I am your host, Diana Baudet. In our very first podcast, Barton Gilman attorneys Kristen Whittle and Matt Plain will give you the legal lowdown on sexual harassment. What is it? How to prevent it from happening? And how to handle it if it does? Thank you for joining us today, Matt and Kristen. Based on the most recent data by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or the EEOC, sexual harassment accounted for one-third of the 90,000 charges filed, and the EEOC and other experts say that regardless of that official number, only one in four victims report it. Kristen, do you feel that this is due to a lack of understanding of what exactly is considered sexual harassment, and can you clarify that for us? Absolutely. So sexual harassment is defined in our legal system to include sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, and verbal or physical conduct under two circumstances. One is which where the request for sexual favors, advances, or other offensive conduct is required in exchange for employment decisions. So for example, where a supervisor is saying requesting sexual favors in exchange for a raise, a promotion, or some other benefit of employment in exchange for that sexual conduct. Um, The other type of sexual harassment that we see in the workplace is what we call a hostile work environment situation where the offending conduct, requests for sexual favors, or other forms of harassment create an environment that is so hostile and offensive that it really affects the terms and conditions of an employee's workplace. So again, the legal definition of sexual harassment is broad, and that's right, Diana. Many employees find themselves in a situation where they're not sure if what they're experiencing is actionable sexual harassment or just other workplace misconduct. And again, as I think Matt will address in a moment, um, the examples of sexual harassment and the types of sexual harassment can be so varied, it can be very difficult for a claimant or victim to understand what it means to have been sexually harassed and how to deal with that. Um, I'll note that many people typically think of sexual harassment as occurring um, between a male and a female. Most often we think of the offender as a male, the victim or complainant as a female. But the scope of sexual harassment and types can be very broad, um, can include same-sex harassment, female on male. Um, There was a recent case filed in the state of Rhode Island involving a straight male restaurant worker who is alleging harassment by gay male coworkers. So again, there's no one-size-fits-all definition, and I think Matt is ready to provide some examples of that. Yeah, thanks for that, Kristen. Now, I want to stress that there's not a one-size-fits-all definition, and that's a challenge that we find in communicating with employers, employees, folks in the workplace about sexual harassment. Oftentimes, people want to hear, what can I do, what can I do? What are the words that I can say? What are the words I can't say? And it doesn't necessarily work like that. Um, In general, there's things that could rise to the level of sexual harassment, and you can venture a guess as to what those might be. Sexual advances, unwelcome sexual advances, whether they involve physical touching or not, name-calling jokes, written or spoken references to somebody's sexual conduct, gossip about someone's sex life, 
comments on somebody's body, comments on someone's sexual activity, sexually suggestive pictures, objects, images that you display in the workplace, unwelcome leering, whistling, brushing against a body, gestures, suggestive or insulting comments, inquiries about people's experiences, discussions of people's sexual activities in general. The challenge is I can't just list out, and I don't think any lawyer could just list out, here are the prohibited words, here's a prohibited conduct. And that's why education and training in the workplace is, is key. When courts look at these things, they look at the totality of the circumstances, and they go through analysis that includes what was spoken or what conduct folks engaged in, but they also weigh whether the plaintiff or the complainant was a member of the protected class, whether the plaintiff was subjected to unwelcome sexual harassment, whether that harassment was based on sex, whether that hara the harassment allegedly suffered was so severe or pervasive as to alter the conditions of employment or create a hostile and abusive work environment, whether that's objectively offensive and subjectively offensive, meaning it's offensive to the person or the complainant or the victim, but it's also uh, offensive to a reasonable person. So we, we weigh that or a court's weigh that in two different instances. And then, of course, if there's going to be employer liability, there has to be some basis for the employer to be liable for the conduct of one of the employer's employees. In this instance, employee on or employee to employee alleged sexual uh, harassment. But I want to back up a bit because I wanted to address the statistics that you provided, and that's very helpful, and that certainly helps provide a context for all of this. But I want to remind our listeners that a charge of discrimination is like it's akin to a complaint. So a charge doesn't mean that somebody has been found to have engaged in sexually harassing behavior or that an employer is liable for it. It means that a complainant has brought forward a complaint to these administrative agencies. So those stats standing alone don't tell us how, what the commission ultimately found. It could be that there's a vast majority of them where there was some sort of sexual harassment. We, we may not know because parties may have de decided to settle those things out of court or out of the agency. What it also doesn't account for, and you've alluded to this, is that just because there are one, roughly one-third of those complaints or charges relate to sexual harassment, that doesn't mean that that covers every instance of sexual harassment in the workplace across America. In all likelihood, there's great numbers of instances of harassment in the workplace that don't get reported for a variety of different reasons. They may get addressed in the workplace. It may be that a victim doesn't want to come forward. It may be that a witness doesn't want to report something. It may be because something was initiated and then it was concluded to the satisfaction of everyone involved. Any number of reasons. If a complainant brings their complaint to their workplace, does that necessarily get elevated to the EEOC? Or can the two operate separately? That's a great question. Yes, the two can operate separately. Just because somebody brings a complaint to their employer doesn't mean there's employer liability or that the employer is culpable or responsible for the conduct. 
It may be, but that, that standing alone doesn't mean that. Now, the employer's obligated, and we'll go through this in detail when we get on an employer's obligations, but the employer's obligated in their policies, if they're the particular type of employer, that they advise employees about where they can go if they'd like to have this addressed at a different level. State and federal agencies that can investigate these further if the employee, the victim, the complainant deems it necessary to do that. I'd be curious, too, when we get to the employer side to get both of your thoughts on um, the difference between an investigation handled by an agency or the workplace and if one supersedes the other as being a stronger investigation or a more fair and thorough investigation. Great question. On that note, I wanted to talk about a case in the federal district court here in Rhode Island where the court analyzed the complainant or the plaintiff's allegations of sexual harassment in the workplace. The reason why I want to highlight this case is not to say if these things happen, that means there is or was not sexual harassment in your workplace, but I want to highlight how a court would analyze these so we can put this in context for our listeners, our employers, and our employees out there. So there was a case at an employer in Rhode Island, and there were two female employees. One female had alleged that she was sexually harassed by a female coworker. The employee claimed that her coworker had commented on, on a number of occasions that her necklace was pretty and that she wanted her to buy one for her too. She also alleged that her coworker had sat next to her in close, sat very close to her and whispered in her ear, do I need to slide in next to you and take that necklace off of you? She indicated on, in several instances, I want, I want that necklace. In another instance, one of her claims was that when she arrived at work one day after getting a new haircut that had new style, new color, that her colleague had ran her ha hand through her hair and indicated that it looked very pretty on her. And that she, as she was saying these things, that she was, she was rubbing her head while she was doing it. Another time she alleged that in a conference room with a closed door, her colleague had said to her a number of times, I think you need a hug, I think you need a hug. And she had responded with, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. And the other employee walked around the table and grabbed her, kneeled down and grabbed her ankle. Those were the allegations that were put forward. Those are the allegations that the court analyzed. The court, again, brought it through, discussed the elements for these types of claims. And again, those elements are whether the plaintiff was a member of, the protect, of a protected class, whether this plaintiff was subjected to unwelcome sexual harassment, and whether this harassment was based on sex, whether this harassment was so sufficiently severe and pervasive as to alter the conditions of employment and create abusive or hostile work environment, whether this conduct was objectively and subjectively offensive, and whether there was a basis for the employer's liability. The court dismissed this case 
And the court said, although this behavior certainly seemed unwelcome, although it certainly seemed tasteless, and although it certainly seemed inappropriate and unprofessional, it didn't meet the elements in this particular case. The court indicated that there's no evidence that it was threatening, that there was no evidence that the plaintiff was intimidated. Further, the court noted that it was not so severe to constitute abusive conduct and that it was not severe and pervasive. Now, that's one case, and I want to emphasize that each case is different. And courts look at the totality of circumstances, and they'll weigh what was happening in this workplace, who the actors involved are, what kind of conduct was exhibited, what was said, the context for what was said. So we can't just say, okay, well, in a, that means that you can comment on necklaces. That means that you can comment on folks' hair. That means that you can touch people's heads. That means that you can touch people's ankles. Not necessarily. That just means in this particular instance, this court found that at that stage, it was not appropriate for the case to proceed. But same, similar set of facts in a different setting with different people involved, it could come out differently. So I want to make sure that we keep that in mind, that I can't put a poster up in a lunchroom at an employer's workplace and say, you can comment on necklaces, you can't comment on this. You can touch scalps, you can't touch other parts of the body, you can touch ankles. That wouldn't make sense because we're, we're looking at the whole set of circumstances. That's a really good point, Matt. Um, and I think some of the things that really make a difference is whether the offender um, or the person who's alleged to be doing the harassment um, it matters whether that person is a supervisor or a colleague un in certain circumstances. As we mentioned before, um, one basis for employer liability for sexual harassment is where the supervisor is doing offending conduct in return for promises of raises or promotions. That's held to a different standard than if a colleague was doing this offensive behavior um, because of the power dynamic with respect to a, an ordinary rank-and-file employee with respect to their supervisor, that there can be more pressure on that employee to comply with requests or demands from a supervisor than they would with a regular colleague. And I also think it's an important point you raised, Matt, about the subjective and objective nature of harassment. In order to be actionable, meaning in order for these cases to proceed in court and ultimately lead to um, damages or money recovery for a complaining victim, it needs to be both objective and subjectively offensive. So in the case example you raised, Matt, some employees may not be offended by that conduct of that coworker. An employee may not find it offensive for that person to have their hair touched, or they may appreciate compliments from a colleague or even from a supervisor on their appearance. So that is a very important point to make sure our, our audience is aware that this is a highly contextual analysis. And again, it's not a one-size-fits-all example of what constitutes sexual harassment that rises to the level of imposing liability on an employer. And just one last point while we're still on this, um, the basis for employer liability, an employer needs to be made aware of this conduct, particularly where it's two colleagues rather than a supervisor. 
if someone's being harassed by a colleague who's not a supervisor and that person never tells the employer, an employer is not likely to be held liable in that circumstance because there's no way that they could have acted to prevent or remedy that harassment, which is different where a supervisor is committing the offending behavior because a supervisor is held to the higher standard of the employer. A supervisor is considered representative of that employer for purpose of legal liability. This is a great point, and that's why I want to emphasize throughout this, education and training is key. And if organizations spend their time, their energy, and their resources on education and training, it will yield positive results for them. And if they do that consistently, they do that regularly, and they do that even if there's not a current problem that they perceive. If they invest in it, it will prevent. And prevention is a great area to spend your organization's resources. You can put police mechanisms in place to address these, and we can have great processes for doing investigations. And it would be ideal if there was no reason to do it because organizations not only promoted but experienced positive and productive workplaces, and we just didn't have this at all. That all said, we want to have the investigatory procedures in place for in the unfortunate circumstances they do arise. But train, educate, do it regularly. That brings my, another question to mind in the descriptions that you've given. Um, what about workplace dating? That seems like a very large gray area where that kind of relationship is consensual. It could be viewed by coworkers and misunderstood. Um, what kind of gray area does that bring and what happens when a relationship gets out of control in the workplace? That's an important question, Diana. And in reality, folks spend so much of their time in the workplace that it would be impossible to prevent folks from developing interpersonal relationships with their coworkers, whether that be on a friend basis or oftentimes workplace romances can arise. And I think the approach that employers take in this particular area is all over the map. We work with a number of employers who embrace workplace relationships um, and, and that's okay. We also work with folks and are aware of employers who have a very hardline view of preventing workplace romance from developing. Um, some employers are somewhere in the middle that, you know, they'll accept workplace romance, kind of turn a blind eye to it unless it develops into something that's going to be problematic in the workplace. Um, other employers ask that folks who are entering into a romantic relationship report that to their supervisors. A best practice that we typically recommend to our employer clients is to avoid, if at all possible, having romantic partners in a direct reporting relationship such that one romantic partner is not directly supervising their partner such that they're not responsible for disciplining their partner, uh, promoting their partner, and determining their pay. Otherwise, it's a flexible approach that employers can take. Um, again, as, as you mentioned, Diana, the, the danger here is where a workplace romance goes wrong and develops into something that's not acceptable in the workplace. Um, for example, there was a, a recent instance where two coworkers were having a consensual sexual affair, and one of those participants 
filed a complaint that she was being sexually harassed by her colleague in order to prevent her husband from finding out that she was having an affair with a coworker. It was investigated in the workplace and the human resources department in that instance found out what was happening. It decided, you know, this this is not something that warrants discipline, but creating a culture where workplace romance is okay or not needs to be thought of at the outset. How an employer is going to deal with it um, should be as part of that training and prevention program that Matt mentioned, um, some thought at the outset on how the employer will embrace or prohibit workplace romance can be helpful to do at the outset before some kind of charge like the example I just gave um, develops. With workplace relationships, also develop a policy and stick with it. If you have a policy and you allow for workplace relationships, so long as it's not supervisor, supervisee, something along those lines, and you allow for it in some instances in, with consistency to your policy and then not in other instances that might lead to some challenge down the road. And if you prohibit it based on your policy and you discourage it in some instances and allow for it in others, that could also lead some, to some problems. So again, spend some time on the front end with education, prevention, and training. And also, if you have a policy, make sure that your employees know about it. Make sure the folks that are involved in your organization, they receive education and training on it. And you may want to consider what type of education and training that is. Having an employee acknowledge that they've received the handbook is good. It's better if in addition to acknowledging that they've received it, that they've been provided with training on it. So they understand, they're apprised of its contents. There's a conversation around its meaning and they're afforded the opportunity to ask questions. And I'm sure a clear understanding of the consequences of running afoul of the policy would be important too. And you want to have a policy on that. Yeah. Good point. So with sexual harassment, if somebody believes they've been harassed in the workplace, what should they do? Great question, Diana. So as Matt mentioned, employers are typically encouraged as a best practice and required in some states, including Rhode Island. Uh, many employers are required to have a policy for how to handle complaints and investigations of sexual harassment. So if an employee feels that they have been subjected to sexual harassment, um, follow the policy. An employer should encourage their employees to be aware of that policy and to follow it. So if a policy requires that the first complaint be made to a supervisor or if the supervisor is involved in the conduct to someone else in the organization, that's where the investigation should start. So the employee makes that first internal complaint and then the employer takes on the investigation responsibility. As Matt mentioned earlier in response to your question, Diana, um, the employee is not prohibited from also filing a complaint with the applicable state agency or with the federal EEOC. So in Rhode Island, that would be the Rhode Island Commission for Human Rights, in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, or MCAD. Those can happen at the same time, or the Formal complaint can be filed after or even before the informal complaint in the workplace can happen. So it's important for the employee to follow the internal policy, and it's important for the employer 
to ensure that that internal policy is followed. Because if it's not followed, then that can cut off an employer's liability. If an employer says, you know, we had this policy and the employee failed to follow it, that can be a great defense for employers to use if and when that goes to court, that they had this robust policy in place and it just wasn't followed. That can cut off liability for the employer to say that, look, we thought that this complaint was resolved at an earlier stage. We were not aware that this was continuing. An employee, it, it's on you to ensure that that policy is followed to your satisfaction. So again, file a complaint or whatever the policy requires, whether it be oral, some employers um, require or at least encourage potential victims or complainants of sexual harassment to put that in writing and document it. If the employee is not comfortable putting it in writing, the employer can go ahead and do that for their file. Um, once that complaint has been filed internally, it's up to the human resources department or whoever the employer has designated as their investigator to follow up on that complaint, interview witnesses, interview the accused offender, and document that process carefully to ensure that the investigation policy is being followed properly. That policy can be sensitive and tricky where the folks who are supposed to be the investigator or the receiver of complaints are the ones who are also being accused of the harassment. So it's important for employers to have backup mechanisms where if an employee isn't comfortable reporting a complaint to their supervisor or to the president or the organization, that there are other options for that employee um, to report their complaint without having to go through the person who's accused of the offensive conduct. Um, Kristen, you mentioned witnesses, which is a great point, um, that there may be people that witness the harassment happening. What protections are in place? What can those witnesses do? How how would you encourage a witness to come forward? Would you encourage a witness to come forward? What are the 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 best practices in place for a witness. Matt, do you mind answering that? I'd love to. Here's a challenge. It's easy to sit in my seat and say, here's what folks should do. It's harder to be that person that has observed or may have observed some inappropriate conduct in the workplace because you're going to be put in a jam, potentially. What do I do? I don't know if this crosses that threshold. I don't know if this is inappropriate. It seems like it. If I do this, will I be affected? Will it impact my employment? Will I open myself up to, to inquire, further inquiry and ridicule, potential retaliation, damaging interpersonal relationships within the workplace? It's a tough spot for anyone. That all said, I'd rather a witness incorrectly characterize something as harassment and report it to an employer and have the employer conduct their investigation and find or not that something has occurred, then that person accurately characterize something as sexual harassment and not do anything. When sexual harassment occurs in the workplace, the victim certainly suffers. No question about that. But the workplace in general suffers. Yeah. Kristen, do you think as a witness, what is the investigation process like for them? Is that another preventive to having a witness come forward? And would, should that also be included in the sexual harassment policy? 
Great question. I, I think that the best sexual harassment policies or non-harassment policies, as I like to call them, um, provide support and protection for witnesses and victims alike. That the policy should explicitly say that no victim or witness who in good faith makes a report of potential sexual harassment, um, that those folks cannot be retaliated against in the workplace, and that they will be offered support and guidance through the process. The investigation um, should typically involve interviews of that witness. Um, because of the, the highly sensitive nature of these investigations, a witness may not receive further feedback about the outcome of the investigation in the same way that a victim would. Um, the witness should be provided with an interview and with whatever information is necessary to complete the investigation but particularly in instances where the harassment complaint is found to be unfounded, a witness would not receive feedback from the employer about discipline or any other measures that the employer has taken with respect to the offender because that would be highly sensitive personnel file information. So a witness is in a, a slightly different situation than a victim or party to that harassment. But Again, besides the investigation, it's really important for employers to, as Matt said, create this culture of non-harassment, that HR departments are really in a dual role here, that they have this duty to their organization to conduct an investigation and protect the employer or the organization from legal liability, but they also have a role to support the victim and the witness in this investigation process and ensure that their workplace is a place where people want to come to work and want to feel supported and want to feel that they won't be subject to further harassment and they'll be protected from offending behavior. So again, while it's important for the investigation to proceed and to really meet out what went on and assess discipline if necessary, um, the flip side of that is to ensure that victims and witnesses are supported and that they're really creating this positive culture in the workplace where harassment is not tolerated and where it's shut down immediately and permanently. Kristen, can you um, share with us what exactly employers should do if a complaint is filed? Absolutely. So whoever files the complaint is where the investigation should start. So the investigator, it's typically an HR department, but in smaller employers, it, it can be really anyone in administration. Um, the investigation would start with that person with an interview and to find out the facts of exactly what happened, who the accused offender is, who the accused victim is, and whether there were any witnesses to the conduct. The employer or investigator should document all of that carefully for their files. It would be in a separate investigation file. Um, separate and apart from a personnel file. And then the investigator would want to go or should go and interview the offender, any again, any witnesses, and the victim to the extent that the victim was not the person who originally filed the complaint. I'm using the word victim. I'm not sure that all employers would like to use that word. You can use complaining witness or charging party. You can use any number of terms, um, to describe the person who has been the subject of the alleged harassment. Um, these interviews are really important to do so in an impartial way. Um, Open-ended questions, try not to put words in these folks' mouths, and not to use accusatory language in conducting those interviews. 
you really want to get the facts, asking those journalism type questions that who was involved, when did it happen, what exactly happened, how did it happen, and where did it happen. I'm doing so in a non-accusatory way, open-ended, and taking careful notes to document that. Um, the investigation should be completed as quickly as possible so that the, the victim is not subject to this long, drawn-out process, but it's important uh, on the flip side not to rush the investigation. This is very sensitive and it's very important. So you want to do it in a careful, thorough way. Once those interviews have been completed, the employer should collect any documents to the extent that there were emails exchanged or social media involved, um, which is prevalent in our workplaces as we see it now. This conduct may not just be occurring in the physical work building, it could be happening on social media. There could be issues at a workplace event outside the context of the four walls of the organization. So again, interview witnesses, collect documents, and then analyze those all in the context of what was learned. The employer should then determine whether harassment or other offensive conduct took place. And then if it did, the employer should decide what the appropriate outcome is, whether it involves discipline to the offender up to and including termination, which is the language we would use in an anti-harassment policy. Um, that can mean suspensions without pay, with pay. It can mean um, demotion, transfer to another workplace, or termination of employment in egregious circumstances. And again, it's important to note that through this investigation, to the extent the investigator or other folks in the workplace can provide support to the complainer, the complaining party, the victim, offer counseling if that's appropriate, make sure that the victim feels safe in the workplace, see if there's a way to, in severe circumstances, get the offender out of the workplace while the investigation is taking place by way of a suspension with pay, work at home arrangements, such that the person can do their work but without being physically in the presence of the person um, who's been accused or accusing of that improper conduct. Kristen, that was a great description. A few things you said in there that I just want to make mention of. One, when you're talking about separating the complaining party from the alleged perpetrator or aggressor in this instance, that's a very common. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's been a finding. And oftentimes we do things like this to ensure the safety, the protection, and the confidentiality of folks involved. And even after there's a finding, if there's no ultimate separation from employment and the parties continue to work in a particular organization, it may be appropriate for the employer to put some sort of safety plan in place with respect to those employees, because it may be that the employer finds that they're, they're wasn't conduct or behavior that rises to a particular level. Nevertheless, there was conduct and they want to ensure that they reduce the likelihood that something like this could occur again. And another component that I, I'm glad you raised and I want to point out, the social media, and I think this is a subject for another installment of these series, there's social media privacy laws. There's a very specific social media privacy law in Rhode Island. And in general, in Rhode Island, employers can't require that an employee hand over 
social media type posts. There's exceptions to that. And some of those exceptions may be when an employer is conducting an investigation regarding alleged inappropriate workplace conduct. So that would be one of those instances. Yeah, so I want both of you to go back to proactive training programs. Um, you both have mentioned them and their importance and um, how much success they can give an employer um, in preventing sexual harassment in the workplace. Matt, can you expand on how an employer can go about placing a proactive training program? Yeah, and the good news is in Rhode Island, for employers of 50 or more employees, the General Assembly has mandated that these types of employers adopt a policy of anti-harassment in the workplace. And these policies must include these components, that sexual harassment is unlawful, that there will not be retaliation for coming forward with a complaint. The policy must have descriptions and examples of prohibited conduct. The policy must explain the range of consequences if there's a finding of inappropriate conduct in the workplace. It must describe the process or the investigation that Kristen artfully unveiled for us. And it also must, and we've alluded to this on a few different, in a few different instances throughout our discussion, that it also has to apprise folks of the enforcement agencies in the event that a complainant, a witness, wants to advance a complaint further. And generally, those are the EEOC and then in Rhode Island, the Rhode Island Commission for Human Rights or in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination. So that's laid out. And in addition, employers are required, if you have 50 or more, you're required to ensure that employees receive this policy and at the out, they must receive it at the outset of their employment if they're new hires. And the law goes further, encourages employers to do regular education and training. Now that's a mandate for employers of 50 or more. It's good practice for employers of less than 50 employees just because you don't have an obligation doesn't mean it's not a good idea to do these things. In fact, it very much is. Yeah, are employers that have less than 50 employees held to a different standard, or are the laws in place just the same for them if sexual harassment is alleged? There can be employer liability, whether you're five employees or 100 employees, depending on, again, on the circumstances. This just requires employers to undertake these steps. So if an employer 50 more didn't do these things, then that would present a challenge when they're maintaining or advancing some defenses to employer liability in a sexual harassment type case. So you don't want to be that employer that's facing liability in an administrative agency or court that had an obligation to, to do these things and didn't. That all said, just because you've done these things, that doesn't mean you're absolved of all liability. It just means you've checked off some of the initial boxes. But again, I, I can't stress it enough that the education and training is key. Having communicating these things in the workplace is key. Apprising folks of rights. You don't want witnesses or complainants to learn of their rights for the first time when there's an incident. You want them to know of it in advance. In fact, you want to prevent it. 
And you're more likely, in my opinion, to prevent it if folks are made aware of your policy and what you plan to do in the event of complaint. Kristen, do you have thoughts on that too? There's so much that's intangible about creating a workplace where this offending conduct is not permitted and just does not happen. It's really important for supervisors and folks at the top level to immediately and quickly shut down any workplace banter that could potentially cross the line into sexual harassment. Make it very clear from a very top administrative level that offensive conduct, whether it be sexual harassment or any type of um, discrimination on any basis, is not okay in the workplace. That's not permitting off-color jokes to happen in the hallway. That's not permitting folks to... um, engage in borderline harassment behavior. Again, with the dating policy, um, having a clear policy in place, as Matt said, is really important to creating that culture where it's very clear to employees what is appropriate in this workplace and what is not. Um, Workplace cultures can vary um, dramatically depending on industry, depending on the, the makeup of who's working at a particular workplace. But again, this comes this has to come from the top, um, the president, CEO, or the folks who are in charge of an organization to make at the outset very clear in an established policy what's appropriate and what's not, and to enforce that consistently on a day-to-day basis. In light of all that we've heard on the news um, in terms of sexual harassment in Hollywood and beyond the Me Too movement, how do you both see any potential changes in the sexual harassment landscape coming down the road for just your general employers, never mind the the Hollywood and the scandal, but for regular people, what do you think will be different in 2018, 2019, and as we move forward? Here's a hope of mine. And that sincere hope is that organizations engage in more regular education and training. And it's my hope that they spend more time, energy, and resources on this education and training, regardless of whether they have a current problem or they perceive or anticipate that they'll have a problem down the road. That's most likely to send a message and train their employees. I hear and I'm Kristen May too, from folks all the time that they don't need a training because that's not a problem for them. And it may not be a problem until it is. And I tell folks with regularity that let's assume that you're going to win Powerball and you're going to move to a remote tropical island and no one's going to hear from you or the other administrators within your organization again. Don't you want to leave the place in, in a spot where they've had education and training without the personalities of the current people that are in it? So spend time on it. It will be worth it. It may take time. It may take energy. It may take you offline from what your, the mission of your organization is. But it's, it's a component of it in promoting a positive and productive workplace. You'd be hard-pressed to find an organization that, that doesn't want that as a component of its practices. Spend time on this. It will be worth it. I think as part of what's, what we're seeing going on right now, employers are going to do that. That encourages me that folks that don't have a problem will do it anyway. It encourages me that in the organizations where 
maybe it's more likely to happen that folks will potentially nip these things in the bud and that we won't we won't get to that. We won't get to addressing things on the back end when it's already happened. We'll have prevented it. We'll have engaged in in activities and we'll have engaged in different trainings and seminars and educational activities that will allow folks to proceed with their workplace interactions in a positive and productive manner. I completely agree with you, Matt. And I think that's important from two perspectives. Employers need to be concerned about their liability. What's going to happen if you're going to get sued? No employer wants to be hit with a lawsuit that alleges sexual harassment that's gone on for many years. At the same time, no employer wants to have a workplace where folks are being harassed, and that will lead to morale issues in the workplace. No one's going to want to work for an employer where there is a culture of sexual harassment. Um, So again, there are two issues. It's the legal liability in court and the creation of a, a positive and productive workplace that folks want to be involved and engaged in. And the retention of good employees, which of I course. think gets lost. If you're a victim and or if you're the harasser, you might potentially lose somebody that's a really strong worker and coworker, regardless of what's happened. Absolutely. Thank you for listening and joining us today. And thank you, Matt and Kristen, for your time. Our pleasure, Diana. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Diana. Barton Gilman is a leading civil litigation law firm with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York. Our attorneys represent a variety of clients in a wide range of matters, and our trial attorneys appear regularly in the federal and state courts of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York, as well as before various administrative agencies. Barton Gilman and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including 2017 Champions for Justice, 2015 Outstanding Philanthropic Business, Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, and Super Lawyers, to name just a few. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information.